Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Let's hope that I've spent enough time on the subject of religious genius to talk about it without having prepared a lecture. Uh, in part, I've written a book on the subject, so I would assume that I know something about it. Uh, God has blessed me with the wonderful gift of forgetfulness, that as soon as I finish a book, I forget what's in it. So before I give a talk, I always have to read the book to remember what do I actually think. And since I didn't read the book now because I was planning on reading it this afternoon, uh, I'll just have to see what I remember. So this would be the challenge. So let, 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 me, let, me, let me talk freely, and hopefully I'll do justice to the topic. I was just having a talk with, uh, you're known as Rabbi Shmuley, Reb Shmuley, Shmuley, all the above. And I told him I'm a tzaddikim junkie. Uh, we were talking about, I mentioned to him that I'd been in the Ukraine for the high holidays. I go every year on pilgrimage to Rabbi Nachman of Breslov's uh, tomb site, as do he had, had wanted his disciples to do. And we were talking about my experiences in the Ukraine and visiting the grave sites of holy people. And we were talking about Chabad here in Scottsdale, Arizona, whatever. And I mentioned to him that I'd visited the tomb of the founder of the Chabad dynasty, uh, Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Liadi, who was buried in a tiny town in, now in Ukraine called uh, Adich, Gadich. And what a powerful and special experience that was. And then I mentioned this experience, this, this, this uh, term to him. Uh, I told him, well, I'm a, chassi, I'm a tzaddikim junkie. In other words, someone who thrives on contact with elevated spiritual beings Saints, as some traditions would call them, spiritual masters, gurus, tzaddikim, uh, uh, wali alas, different traditions have different names for them. But the idea, I, I, I begin by putting forth the, the concept on the experiential side, and then we can work more specifically to the conceptual side of religious genius. The experience of it and what underlies what has driven me in this quest intellectually and what continues to drive me in this quest um, experientially, is the recognition that there are some individuals in whose company, sometimes that company is while they're alive, at other times their company is while they have passed on, but they're still accessible in their own way. There is an elevation of our consciousness. Now, I don't know how many of you have had an experience of walking into a room where you feel there's someone of a special quality, a higher, a higher order of being, where you walk in there and you are transformed by the very being of that person being elevated into another space. I see one nod, two nods. I'm curious, three nods. Wow, basically we're, we're about 70% of the audiences have that experience. That's cool. So let me, let me just a word or two so we can, we can engage uh, on this. A word or two about your experience and I want to hear from others. I was nodding in that I've heard this of other people, but I didn't meet, meet the man. But 
It was the Indian guru Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Got it. Yeah, yeah. I used to do TM uh, before he was born. Um, and minus four, I think, yeah. Or when you were minus seven, I did that. So yeah, that was part of part of part of my agenda. Yourself? Well, I'm Catholic Christian, and I traveled to Medjugorje. Uh huh. That's right. So that's a very powerful place. So the so the the the, the children, the, the visionaries. You, so you had you had that effect with them. Many people do. And yourself? Mine was not a genius. We haven't used the word genius yet. We haven't. Okay. That word just but hasn't been used. A, a person. But when I walked into the room, I felt this sudden um, embracing of, of spirituality just, just from, from seeing it, not from Who was that? Who was that? Was a friend of mine. Just a friend. Wonderful. Boy, this is generating such spiritual heat in me that I think I'm going to take off the jacket. There are definitely some, a number of people I've had that with, but I actually feel that, that feeling of awe you're talking about when I walk into someone dying. Someone dying? Yeah. It's often not to say that everyone becomes a tzaddik when they're dying, but something happens to a person when they realize they're at the end that uh, gives me a lot of awe in their presence. I think that's a, that's a wonderful, wonderful point, one that has never come up in conversations I've had on the subject. And let me try and make sense of that. When someone dies, in my understanding, the soul comes close. And what inspires us about those particular individuals is, in fact, their soul radiates. Most of us, the soul is clouded over by our personalities, worries, concerns, not to mention these things we move about in that we call bodies. And when the soul power radiates strongly enough, other people feel that. When someone is dying, in fact, the soul comes closer. So you would have likely had that experience of, of touching into some higher reality just by virtue of coming close to the soul. So I've had a fascination with these individuals, and some of you have either heard or experienced the sense that there are some people who are different have a different quality. And this has been, uh, I've been on this track now for decades of following the spiritual path through, through the approach to such individuals. I'm going to leave the question of, of inspiration from other religions to a later part. I want to first construct the, the basic approach to these individuals and then, and then raise the question of individuals in our traditions or other traditions. So, these individuals, let's say they have the power, the power of soul. But we also very often and most typically would find those individuals also having some various additional qualities that go with them. They would be very often teachers. They would often have a very high point in their own spiritual life, spiritual attainment that uh, radiate certain qualities. For instance, let's say love. Love is, a, love is a great one with amongst those such individuals, individuals who are emanating love to their environment or humility or just a broader way of being in the world, a uh, broader state of consciousness that they, that they radiate towards others. So, I, in my own experience, have been drawn to those people and I have been drawn to those people both in Judaism and beyond Judaism. In Judaism, in as much as my own spiritual quest actually never began that way. I'm reflecting on my own path. But within, within, I don't know, maybe 10 years of having decided to take my Judaism seriously, I found myself gravitating towards the Hasidic tradition. And the Hasidic tradition is the tradition that most profiles these individuals. It calls them tzaddikim, masters, 
uh, its social organization is around those people. So all of you know Chabad. Chabad is, orga- or Lubavitch, Chabad is organized around the history, beginning with this one individual I referenced a few moments ago, and continuing through the various generations until the last Rebbe who passed away about 25 years ago and is buried in New York and whose tomb remains a ma- is a major pilgrimage shrine. I personally try, when I pass through JFK or through New York, to go there. I try to sometimes fly out of JFK just so I can make the stop over there and pray and spend time. And it's always a transformative experience. I was there uh, last week. Yeah, last today's Thursday, last Thursday. Very powerful time. Always, always a great teaching to be there. Because thank God I have this uh, connection with him personally and with this very ability to connect with people uh, of, 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 uh, of that capacity. I've also been blessed with quite a significant history of attachment to individuals of other traditions. I've had a teacher who's not Jewish. Uh, I have, um, uh, just today in Los Angeles, uh, there's a Hindu teacher I'm very close to. I'm sure many of you have heard of Amma, this Indian hugging saint who's hugged 30 million people. Very close to her. Uh, Saw her as recently as last week in Europe. And always a powerful transformative experience to be there raises you to a different state of consciousness opens you up reminds you of the spiritual reality so there are these individuals who have that ability to do that to us um, I would say something in terms of Judaism and other religions especially in, the fact, in view of the fact that not everyone sitting in this room is Jewish and that is that in my experience identifying and re- the ability to recognize these people in other traditions will be totally transformative to our view of other religions. I'll tell you a joke. These two uh, Jews are talking to one another. And they're both uh, uh, gabayim. A gabay is the, is the uh, servant, the facilitator who, who helps to manage the court of a, tzad, of a Hasidic tzaddik. They're talking to one another and they said, look, Let's, 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 let's assess the world for a moment. The world is divided into Jews and non-Jews. Well, what's there to talk about non-Jews? Then, let's, the, amongst the Jews, we're divided into Hasidim and Misnagdim, non, non-Hasidim. So, Misnagdim, what's there to talk about? So then we've got the various, uh, the various Hasidic groups. And we know that the two prominent groups are your group and my group. Now let's look at these two groups. There's my Rebbe and there's your Rebbe, and they're pretty, pretty, pretty old, and we know that they're not all that well functioned, which leaves you and me, and I know who you are. <laughs> and there's something of that attitude that characterizes how we view others, where we tend to think that all the good is amongst us. And actually, the ability to recognize the greatness in spiritual individuals of other traditions is a gateway to validating other religions, to recognizing Jews. I was with a Hasidic Rebbe in uh, in Brooklyn. Uh, when did we talk? I think last Thursday, last Friday. I'm very close to another living one. Uh, my wife says, "This is what I do for a hobby: to collect these individuals. Maybe they're collecting me. Who knows who's collecting whom?" And uh, they're recollecting me. They're helping me to recollect certain truths. And and uh, he was talking. He was talking about something spiritual, about the the power of uh, something spiritual and how uh, people attain something. And I said, yes, I totally resonate with that. But you should know, I told him, that I also find this amongst teachers of other religions. Because he knows we're very close. He's he. 
he doesn't speak English. He's totally in the Yiddish-speaking world. He's laying the foundations for the next guest speaker you're going to have here. And, and he's totally caught up in, in that world. And he's, he, I said, but you should know, I, I know people who are... So he says, well, of course, they're, 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 they're righteous amongst the nations. Now, he, he's never met any of them. But he knows in the books that the, that the possibility exists, and therefore he doesn't freak out when I tell him such a thing or reject me. So there's a Hasidic saying that the distance between the knowledge of the head and the knowledge of the heart is like the distance between heaven and earth. Uh, I discovered... Uh, some of you may be old enough to remember Seals and Crofts. Anybody remember that, 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 that rock duo? Yeah, Seals and Crofts. It's a wonderful song that I discovered. I found it on Spotify long after I stopped listening to them in the 70s. The longest road is from the head to the heart. Uh, beautiful song. Whoever has Spotify, just look for Seals and Crofts, The Longest Road. And those are the lyrics. The longest road is from the head to the heart. That's the Hasidic teaching. Distance between the heaven, the heart, head to the heart. No, you know something theoretically. To know it in your heart is something different. So you can know theoretically that there are masters in other religions. But to experience that, to have a relationship, changes that. You have a relationship with someone from another religion who is in that category, and you've totally changed your orientation to that religion. Wow, that religion can produce someone like that. I've got to rethink the negativity. I've got to rethink the rejection. I've got to think the valuation. Maybe other people come through there. Maybe there are other riches. The whole thing changes. Because what we do, and this, this uh, goes back to the lecture that I thought I was giving now, and I'll be giving this evening about Luther, what it does is to, is to replace the stereotyping and negativity and rejection that have, and in some quarters, continue to characterize the attitude of one group to another by a whole other attitude that's based on appreciation, admiration, inspiration, where instead of looking at some stereotype which may have some connection to reality, you're actually looking at the finest members of the community. So you, this is a, 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 a principle of interfaith relations that are articulated by, by Bishop Christopher Stendhal uh, of Stockholm, Harvard, who was one of my mentors. So when you compare religions, compare the best to the best. Don't compare the best to the worst. Compare the best to the best. Well, you want to compare the best to the best, then you want to look at those high giants of spirituality in other religions and to see how you could be inspired by them. So my own experience has been one which I've been greatly inspired by teachers both living and dead in Judaism and other religions. So the category that I had always been thinking about in approaching those individuals has been the category of saints. Why so? Because this is, to a large extent, the discourse about these individuals is governed by Christian conventions, and Christians call them saints, and other religions follow suit. And you can see, for instance, Hinduism, they, relert, they, they usually translate the term sadhu, which is a monk and a holy person, a saint, and Jews speak about tzaddikim as saints, and, and, and Muslims translate. So, so Christians, because of a certain hegemony in various parts of society, including in, in, in the academic side, because uh, of Christian hegemony, terms are taken from the Christian realm and applied to others. Because this area has been a great interest to me, personally, because this area has been a source of great inspiration to me, personally, I wanted to launch a project of deeper reflection on how we can view those finest specimens of other religions and how they can be a source of inspiration to us. And I approached one particular foundation, the John Templeton Foundation, 
And the process of engaging them and them engaging me led them to suggest that I craft my proposal and the project along the lines of something that was interest to Sir John Templeton, which is the notion of a religious genius. Now, it, was, it wasn't really defined what a religious genius was, but the, 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 the intuition was there. That then led me to convene a group of about 50 scholars over a multi-year period in thinking through individuals of other religions and what testimony and what meaning they could have, they could have for us. What emerged from that is our two, our, there's a certain, shall we say, uh, uh, theoretical heritage and, and, and then practical heritage that came, came from that project, some of which still has to be brought to light. So first and foremost, there was a book that's called Religious Genius. Um, I don't imagine I can project it, but what I can do is turn my computer around and just show you the cover page of this. So this, is, this would be the book cover, Religious Genius, uh, Appreciating Inspiring Individuals Across Traditions. This is a book came out, Individual uh, Religious Genius. The book is called Religious Genius. It was published by Paul Grave Macmillan. Uh, came out some time ago, 2017 or 16. I'll tell you in a second what the market of the book is. It says 20, 2017. It was available a few weeks ago on Amazon for $3.00. I, I approached the I approached the press a week ago and said how could it, how could it be listed on your website for a hundred dollars and on Amazon for three dollars now it's listed on Amazon for eighteen dollars it's still affordable not at the, the hundred that the press is wanting for it so this whole project has come up in this one particular book and the second book pending which is um, religious geniuses case studies so. The theory of religious genius that we develop here has been illustrated in a series of case studies of such individuals, and I will, I will draw in the next part of this presentation uh, various bits of information now that we've defined what the subject matter is from those two, from those two presentations. So what I want to do is, first of all, to talk about the theory of religious genius. Who is a religious genius? What is a religious genius? And then move on to illustrating some specific case examples, and then try to conclude this by addressing the question which is the subject of this talk, which is can we be inspired by the religious geniuses of other traditions. So let's move from saints, having recognized there are such people who inspire us, so what makes a religious genius? I want to begin by saying that the quest to speak of religious genius is an attempt to move beyond the Christian-centric use of the term saints as the default language by means of which we describe these individuals. In other words, Christian, a lot of, a lot of research, a lot of existing resources refer to these individuals as saints. We were looking for another language which is neutral. Um, the reason is, to take Judaism as an example, but it's true for other religions as well, I have often come across the, the claim Christians have saints, Jews don't have saints. It's true, Jews don't have saints because they don't have processes of canonizing. They don't have a litany of saints, even though there are practices of reciting the names of saints. But uh, uh, they don't have an all saints feast. So there's various parts in which, say, Catholics, which is the kind of Christianity I'm most familiar with, would have to celebrate the idea of saints. doesn't mean Judaism doesn't have saints. It just means that it looks a little bit differently. Moreover, 
Judaism is diverse. But then so is Christianity. Catholicism, and Nicene Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, they have saints a lot. Some of the Reformed movements don't do saints so much. You know, Baptists don't got no saints. Uh, and the, tr the same Evangelicans don't got no saints, etc., etc. Trump is a candidate, but other than that, I don't think we're, we've got so many. So, even within each of the traditions, Christianity included, there's diversity. But many Jews think we don't have saints. In other words, the Jews that are less Hasidically oriented will claim we don't have saints. But in fact, we have them. We just call them something else. We recognize them to be something else. And this is where the need for developing a category that's neutral and can speak across religions emerges so that we don't, we're not tied in to a category that's specific to one religion, but a category that speaks across religions into many religions. So this then led to the creation of the category of religious genius. So what did we mean by religious genius? And what, do we, what subgroup of the larger group of saints is referenced by religious genius? And what were we trying to say when we chose that category? So to, to, to simplify the point, we, we started this exchange by saying that there are individuals whom we encounter, and the encounter with them uplifts our consciousness. It's transformative. They're teachers. They teach us another way of being by being with them, by their example, by their teaching. What happens when an entire religious tradition is exposed to such individuals? Then potentially they elevate the entire religious tradition. Not every person who's called a saint or is described as saintly has that effect. Um, I'm hard-pressed right now to find an example you would be familiar with uh, of someone who would have been saintly but didn't necessarily change the tradition of Judaism. Um, so let's do this intellectually and do this by, especially because you're a diverse crowd here, so, so each of you comes from a different place. We don't have a common frame of reference. Maybe it can be helped. Maybe someone can help me. How to find an, to illustrate the point that even though someone may be very saintly, in his or her, in the case of Judaism, we, it's usually his uh, saintliness. He attained excellence for himself, for his own evolution, maybe for his immediate community, in fulfilling the ideals. But he didn't change, alter, guide, or significantly shift the tradition to help it to grow. The point I'm trying to make is that there are two ways in which these individuals operate. One is that they become models of excellence who fulfill and realize and give particular expression to the tradition. Another is they actually they help the tradition move forward. I, am, I, am I being clear in this distinction? Okay, I'll have to keep the distinction without giving a good example that everybody can. But if, if, if anybody can give me a, an example that you feel is relevant, I'd be grateful for it because... I just don't know what's our common frame of reference here. Anyone on this point can help me? Who, who, give me names of people you would consider saintly today or in recent memory. Then we can just quickly... Modern people? If, if there is such a thing. Yeah, any, anyone who's modern. Who, who you would consider people who... Then we can look, you know, was he saintly because he, was, he or she was a saintly person because they really helped push the tradition in some significant... Sadiq Yerushalayim? Sadiq Yerushalayim, that's me. <laughs> who are you thinking of? Yeah, you didn't change Jerusalem so much, too. Who? Uh, I don't know. No, that's a very nice example. So that's a very nice example. So there was a man. In, there was a man. There was a man in. Uh, he was a disciple of Rav Kook. Let's take those two individuals. Okay. Uh, who here has heard of Rav Kook? Okay. So we have some people who have heard of him. 
Uh, Rav Kook is, is an amazing example of a religious genius. Let's 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 look at Rav Kook as an example of religious genius, and then and then contrast him with his disciple Rav Ari Levine. I think that's a very good example. So why is Rav Kook a religious genius? Because he is someone who certainly had that state of sainthood about him. He had that status of having attained spiritual excellence. The the interior qualities where he and other tzaddikim would have something in common would be that state of consciousness that extends beyond seemingless, endless capacity for love, deep humility, orienting himself towards a higher order of reality and trying to ground that higher order of reality down here. So a person who's living in two worlds, so to speak, up there or out there and down here or here, and providing a bridge and a point where he raises raises the other people. Uh, I'm not even talking about what should be taken for granted as excellence in the performance of the mitzvot, full dedication to the religion, moral excellence to the highest degree possible. Those are taken for granted. But beyond that, a higher state of being that such individuals manifest. So Rav, Rav Arya Levine, uh, he was a man who really was, you could almost say, an incarnation of, of charity and compassion, uh, a loving being, and he was the rabbi of prisoners during the time of the mandate when uh, uh, many Jewish uh, individuals were uh, were jailed uh, in British jails uh, in Palestine then. Uh, great source of, of love, support, encouragement, positivity, piety. A model, a model to imitate. Does Judaism change as a consequence of him? No. And the, true, the same is true for 90% of rabbis, 95% of rabbis, 99% of rabbis. They don't change the religion. They just, they just provide a good example of its, of its fulfillment, of its excellence. His teacher, Rabbi Ibrahim Isaac Cook, first chief rabbi of Palestine, great mystic, great thinker, one of the greatest spiritual beings ever to have come through Judaism. He's a man who changed Judaism. What makes him a religious genius is that, first of all, first and foremost, on the level of personal excellence, he fulfills all, the, all those qualities that we're talking about. That humility, that love, that open consciousness that bridges the different worlds. But he's also a thinker. And most religious geniuses would be thinker in as much as the very term co- genius suggests something cognitive. A genius is someone who finds solutions, who, who tackles new topics, who brings new insight, who, 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 who has a new way of seeing things that wasn't seen before. So he makes a contribution to teaching. And in the process of making a contribution to teaching, he states the religion in fresh ways. What's our problem? Our problem is that religion gets stale. Religion gets outdated. Religion gets not the core of God, not the core of the path, but its particular iteration, its formulation. It's often associated with problems of the past, uh, ways of looking of the past, cultural orientation of the past, and things change, and we need a fresh articulation. If we don't have someone who grounds that, not just as a social drive or an attempt to make the tradition more contemporary, but as part of a spiritual move, then we lose something of the power and dynamism of the tradition. So Rav Kook was a man who had the ability to 
ground a new vision from Judaism for the time. So from the depth of his mystical being, his poetic being, he was able to create a theoretical synthesis of all the streams of Judaism, ground them in a contemporary historical vision of the moment in which he could describe what Judaism is and what its message is in the context of the return to Israel, a return to Israel that was mostly taken up by secular Zionists, and to read that historical moment as a moment of spiritual awakening in which he interprets the moment, gives meaning to history, gives meaning to Judaism in the context of the moment, and paints a new vision for Judaism to go forward. So Judaism after Rav Kook looks different than Judaism before Rav Kook. Give another example of a, uh, a religious genius of Judaism. Um, we mentioned the Rebbe Lubavitch. I would say he was the last religious genius of Judaism. He's a man who single-handedly created a movement. He's a man who was able to articulate a vision of what Judaism needs for the world today by creating outreach, bringing people close. A man who revolutionized the internal teachings of his particular form of Judaism, which was much more uh, introvert, turning it to extrovert, taking what they call the secrets of Torah, making them broadly available, articulating a theory of divine uh, uh, of divine presence and, and, and kingdom and making it available materially and thereby transforming Lubavitch from a movement that's uh, contemplative into a movement that's active and missionary and finds God in the here and now of social engagement and processes while grounded not just in a theory of social action but while grounded in a theory of, of divine understanding and everything. That's religious genius. Core personality Reaching out, reforming and changing, re reforming and changing the religion. At every core point in time, we have someone who comes there and then brings brings a fresh view to the religion. If you ask me, we're missing a religious genius today. The religious, we're we're at a point in this this expression in Hebrew, we're we're we are an orphaned generation. Doriatom. I can't think of a single person today in all of Judaism, Orthodox and Surah or Reform in any other strand, who I would classify as a religious genius. I can't think of a single person who has both that depth of being, depth of vision, and the ability to articulate a new vision for Judaism today. You have individuals like this rabbi I spoke to in Brooklyn who are really paragons of, of virtue, excellence, devotion. Impressive. Wonderful, inspiring. I love being with him, love davening with him. He has no vision for Judaism. He's, he's saying the old vision in ways that can be potentially inspiring. But to me, to the individual, not a broader vision. You have people who are going out there trying to do good in the world in the name of Judaism. All too often it's not grounded in the fullness of that divine vision and therefore can't really provide a theory or a fresh statement of what things mean. You have professors and academics and theologians who try to give meaning to things, but they, they lack that depth of creativity and engagement that really has to come from the wellsprings of, of, of being grounded in God. Well, if you don't have religious geniuses in your tradition, what happens when you look around and look at other traditions? Could other traditions provide you with models who are inspiring? Well, I've already come clean and said that I am inspired by people of other religious traditions, which is why I created an organization 
that is based on bringing together religious leaders of different religious traditions so that they all share and exchange. The work I do under the umbrella of the Elijah Interfaith Institute includes bringing together, creating the Elijah Board of World Religious Leaders that brings together some of the world's premier religious leaders. I would, I would urge you to, for instance, visit our homepage where we have a clip of the world's top religious leaders under elijah-interfaith.org or just Google Elijah Interfaith Institute. You'll see a clip where the Dalai Lama and the Pope, our Chief Rabbi of Israel, Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Grand Mufti of Egypt, the top religious leaders in the world, making a joint call for friendship. So this is, this is the stuff that I thrive on, going between the different religions and the different religious leaders and bringing forth that kind of sense of, of unity between them. And therefore, to me, looking at religious geniuses of other traditions is not only part of how I seek to develop a new theoretical agenda for joint reflection between different religious communities. It's not only part of how I seek to create tools for students and others to appreciate. It's also part of a burning need we have in the world today. Where do we find inspiration for the world today? And what, can, what allows us to find that inspiration when we're lacking it in our tradition, in other traditions? Which then raises a very interesting question, which is, well, okay, if Judaism doesn't have religious geniuses today, are other religions doing better? And that's a very interesting question. And if other religions are doing better, what can we learn from there? Um, the short answer is that the jury is out. I don't know the answer to that. The reason I don't know the answer to that is because, in part, it's a matter of definition of who is a religious genius. And I want to I run by you three figures. Um, one of them is studied in our book on, on religious genius uh, contemporary cases. One has come up in conversations, and the third hasn't. And are they religious geniuses or not? The reason I want to go through this little exercise in the next five minutes is because it also shows you the value of the category of religious genius as a heuristic. In other words, the issue is not yes or no. Do we come to this conclusion or that conclusion? The issue is, can we use this category with profit to advance our thinking? Can we think about these individuals by means of this category, which then gives us greater nuance rather than just approaching people, but using that nuance in order to think of who these people are, what their contribution is. So, one personality who, come, who came up time and again in our conversations on religious genius was the Dalai Lama, as a contemporary figure. He's one of the most respected uh, contemporary figures worldwide in religion. He's a man who attempts to advance Buddhism. He does this by articulating a new vision of Buddhism for the world today, in, on several fronts that are novel. One of them is his advance in interfaith dialogue and his understanding of other religions. Uh, he's got one book devoted to that particular topic, and he's, from the beginning, one of his, of very early in his career, he had great interest in finding common truths and in engaging religious leaders of other religions. He, amongst religious leaders, he's one of the greatest champions of interfaith dialogue or engagement across religions. Uh, so he's positioning Buddhism not as a competitive missionary religion, which it can be, but as a religion that's in dialogue with other people and has what to give and has what to receive. He's extending this kind of a process to science, and he's engaging in a very serious science-religious dialogue. And amongst religious leaders, globally, he may be the most advanced one in moving forward a conversation between 
scientists in religion on the assumption that religion today has to be able to meet scientific criteria and subject to scientific approaches of believers and, and others as well. He's also a champion of peace. He's a champion of stating a new vision for his community and, and Buddhism as such. Does he qualify as a religious genius? Maybe. Maybe. He, he certainly has many of those. I think a, a lot would depend on whether you view him also internally as how, how great a being. But his, as, as his believers view him as an incarnation of Avalokiteshvara, in other words, the, I think, thousand-faced god of compassion, then to begin with, there's a metaphysical assumption associated by believers, and others would have to judge whether they find him to be someone who really sees a higher reality and brings that to us. And many people, many people feel that is the case. I mentioned Amma, this uh, Hindu teacher. One of the essays in our forthcoming collection is an essay devoted to her. And, and it's interesting because most of the essays in our collection of religious geniuses case studies relate to people who are no longer with us. I believe she's the only person in that book who studied as a living example, which raises an interesting question. Do religious geniuses, as I mentioned earlier, Catholics proclaim people to be saints only when they're, only when they're dead. Uh, amongst Jews, it's not so simple. Jews recognize saints by virtue of the popularity they gain in their lifetime. Some of them ascend to great popularity after they're dead. But most of them really attain their status uh, uh, already in their lifetime. Uh, amongst Catholics, many already are very well known, say Padre Pio, uh, uh, a stigmatized priest of southern Italy in the first part of the 20th century, was hugely popular, had a great cult of following in his lifetime, and not long thereafter, after he passed away, he was canonized. Maybe 10, no, it must be longer the canonization. It would have been 20 years ago, maybe. So, I'll, Ama is a case of someone living, and can you proclaim someone to be saint, as Judaism would, as Christians wouldn't, even though they recognize them somehow, yes and no, whatever. Can you recognize someone as a religious genius in their own lifetime, or do they have to pass the test of time? Again, these are questions that, it's not a yes-no answer, it's questions that are, that are, that are important to, to reflect upon. So what would make her a religious genius? Well, there are many signs and indications of the fact that this individual, this woman, I think it's very important in the Jewish context to profile the fact that she's a woman because we do not have a single example of a Jewish female teacher throughout the ages, let alone a Jewish female tzedeket throughout the ages with some minor, fairly tangential uh, uh, possible uh, exceptions. So here's a woman who starts a global movement, reframes Hinduism as love, makes the statement, my religion is love, turns humanitarian action and service into a primary religious approach, and draws from people of different religions into something that is beyond religion or a meta-religion, or call it what you will, that gives a new articulation to what religion is, to what Hinduism, that allows her to, to, to claim many disaffected people and even to reach out to the hearts of many people who are not disaffected, like present company here, uh, who can be inspired by the example of such a woman and the power of love, reality, presence, being, and example of functioning uh, uh, broadly and socially. So is this, is this a religious genius? A case can be made. Now, when I say a case can be made, the point is that 
We can find inspiration in such individuals whether or not we finally decide to apply the category of religious genius to them. We may choose to call them that or not. It's not important. It's the exercise of thinking about it that opens up our thinking and allows us to think what is the testimony and the potential meaning that these people hold for us. Third person I'm thinking of relating to is, is uh, Pope Francis. Why? Because he's contemporary. Many people see him as reframing and moving Christianity forward. And is he a religious genius? Does he have that combination of elements of a great spiritual vision that leads to a social vision that allows the religion to move forward? Or is he a good divine broom who's trying to sweep up and clean the mess within the Catholic Church that he inherited or that's accumulated there? And even, even good divine brooms, could they be religious geniuses? What's the balance between interior qualities, teachings, advancing the faith? And sometimes you need time, you need the passage of time. I imagine he's going to be canonized. I mean, all, all, all recent popes have been canonized almost as a matter of de rigueur. Uh, not all saints are religious geniuses. Who is a religious genius who really helps Christianity move forward? John Paul II, many breakthroughs, many theological breakthroughs. Is Catholicism different after John Paul II? Is he a saint? Is he also a religious genius? I'm not going to decide these questions. These are the kinds of questions that a conversation on the subject of religious genius allows us to hold. So the point then is that by developing this particular category of religious genius, what we are doing is inviting ourselves to examination of our tradition and another tradition through a neutral lens that is, so to speak, scientific, descriptive, but also one that invites inspiration. It's also a category that allows us to consider who do we consider to be the finest people. And I think there are many, many fruits that are made possible by cultivating this category. First and foremost, I would say, is taking stock. The fact that in the case of Judaism, we're, at a we're in a bad moment. I think there were periods in time where we, we were... We had galaxies of religious genius, galaxies of saints. Today we don't. It's a point of crisis. I think all denominations are in, are in trouble, and I think the non-Orthodox are in even greater trouble than others. In other words, I don't see a single meaningful figure emerging in any of the other non-Orthodox denominations, not a single real spiritual luminary uh, emerging there. Community leaders, organizational leaders, teachers handful of theologians, no true spiritual luminary. And here is the interesting test case. Someone you can present to the non-Jews. In, in other words, in the same way that you ask the question, can you be inspired by religious geniuses of other traditions, you can also ask, who are the religious geniuses we have today who can inspire others? I don't think there's a single one in the non-Orthodox denominations today who is inspiring on a global scale. I don't think there's also anyone in the Orthodox who's inspiring, but there's people who may be a little bit more inspiring. Um, the last figure of note who was non-Orthodox, who has come up in our conversations as a surface of inspiration and therefore religious geniosity for his own community and possibly for others, is Heschel. I don't think since Heschel, who's now been dead for nearly half a century, we have, we have any figure whom people in Judaism or out of Judaism can look up to as someone who's, uh, who's, who's inspirational. And I think there are other reasons why Heschel himself may not qualify as religious genius, but as genius theologian. Uh, 
Shmuley has edited a, a no, I wrote the art. I wrote an essay called uh, "Genius Theologian" about about Yitz in your book, right? I, it was I who brought the term, so it was my piece, not not, not the title of the book. So um, it's useful because I think it's 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 humbling. It's humbling to know that actually, oh boy, we're not doing well. Maybe none of us are doing well. Maybe all of us in all religions are faring badly. And it's humbling in the sense that it forces us to look beyond. And it's also humbling and inviting us to look beyond and to see what can we give, what can we offer, what can we share with others. And it's also mind-opening because it invites us to see what can we learn from others and how can we be inspired by others. So developing a religious genius discourse really is a way of opening up new conversations in Judaism, about Judaism, beyond Judaism, that take us out of the more limited framework in which we, within which we tend to think about just upholding our ideas, looking at the greater truths, at the greater historical perspective, at the greater spiritual reality, and using that as a lens to help us all grow in Judaism and beyond. I believe it's exactly 10 to 2, and therefore it's time for me to stop for questions. Thank you. Yeah. Tell me about yourself. My name is David. And what do you do in life? Maybe she tells you. So, I have two questions. Uh, he didn't answer. He went along with that answer. Okay, so be it. <laughs> uh, in, 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 in the Elijah Interfaith group, yeah. um, along the lines of defining what a religious genius is, and identifying religious geniuses of the day, uh, how do you how do you identify the people to invite to come together? Because you might think that that would be a road towards the definition. Uh, when you ask I'm guessing you ask people over time, who else should be part of this group? Who do you know? And then when you ask that question, do you ask it in an open-ended way, or do you say, we believe here are some of the bullet points that would cause this person to qualify? And you name some of them. Uh, humility, emanating love, uh, raising a level of consciousness in the room when they walk in. Uh, so those are sort of two questions about how you come to a definition and what resources you use to identify and bring these people together. Yeah. The question is very appropriate and totally misplaced. Uh, because we don't invite religious geniuses to the table. We invite religious leaders to the table. And the discussion of religious geniuses of, it doesn't assume any overlap with religious leadership as it is today. In other words, I run a, or moderate a group of, let's say, 60 world religious leaders, and I work with an even larger group. Of those people, maybe one or two even qualify for the category of religious genius. Maybe none qualify, and it doesn't matter. Because the work of the board of Elijah Board of World Religious Leaders is to address high-level leadership, to cultivate qualities of friendship, understanding what message they have for the world today, and they have to do so by virtue of the fact that they are the custodians of their religions, of their communities today, not because they're religious geniuses. One of the things we can study, and we have studied jointly 
as members of that group, are those exemplars within their traditions who are religious geniuses? And then we can put forth them the question, who do you consider to be religious geniuses? And as we put that question forward, we get some very interesting answers. And we realize that their own self-definitions may be different from the categories that we ourselves apply. And that so and then I give you an example. The Muslims maintain that in every generation there is a certain number of of high individuals who they would like to identify as religious geniuses always living. I frankly don't remember what the number of those religious geniuses per generation are, but we're looking at something like uh, 10 or 20 or 70, I don't remember, some enormous number that wouldn't at all match our description of what's going on in reality or any theory we try to construct for religious genius. But it's interesting to see that the Muslims would consider that there is such a number of people operative or available in a given generation and that we somehow, according to a Muslim view, would have the need to match up the theoretical number of people whom they consider to be ideal types living today with, let's try and identify who they are. It introduces an interesting challenge, but I don't think it's a real challenge that we can live up to because it doesn't match to our theory. So the answer is, we're really operating with two, two separate criteria. One is the definitions of religious leadership, the other is the definition of religious geniuses, and the overlap to them, I would say, is very small. You said you had two questions. Were these two parts of one question? And I answered it. And you haven't answered my question. I'll want that answer later. Yes, you have a question. You don't have a question. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah, I was going to say not yet. Other questions? It puzzles me that if their criteria has to be male. No, it doesn't have to be. Beautiful. Diversity across religions. Across these women's lives up from history, Christian and scripture and history. But all Christian. <clears throat> yes. And uh, what has happened is they all were subject to what we have. Exclusivism, you're, you think differently, therefore I should kill you, violence, the male versus female thing, homophobia, and all of these women that I wrote about, that was going on in their lives as it is now. Uh, and so um, I started talking about this, and in January I had a group of 18 women. At the end of that weekend, I said, would you like a follow-up group? And, and I usually have five or six ladies on a Sunday afternoon, and I thought, let me do that. They all signed up. I can't, don't have 15 chairs in my house. So I got the retreat house to give me a room, and I've been meeting every month, and I put the word out in the Jewish community, and I'm running around going to everything I can go to to learn. And I'm going to the Islamic Speakers Bureau against and so on. But are you getting Jewish candidates? We now have 167 women on the list, which means they all come at least once. But those 167, are they people who are interested in the subject, or are they people who would qualify to, to be that model that you're looking for? I don't even know the model. I have to tell you the answer to that. Well, I, my, my, my very educated guess is that they're the former. They're interested in the subject, but not that they're necessarily ex exemplars. And let me just tell you, my dear sister that you Catholics are doing much better than we Jews, because you can come up with a list of women. We can't even come up with that list. Well, so forget forget whatever difficulties they had, and forget whatever repressions they had, and forget whatever social price they had. 
but you've got St. Clair and St. Teresa of Avila and numerous female saints. We don't got none. Even the Muslims are doing better than us. Even the Muslims are doing better than us. No, I'm talking historically now. A contemporary, the, the, in the contemporary reality, everything is shifting. We're talking about people, women you can point and say they've attained something. There's a clearly now a movement of women moving into religion, learning religion, and there will be, when God chooses, so wonderful female exemplars coming through our religion. But if I look historically, great women, not talking contemporary women who've gone through academia or through the rabbinate and have a voice or a social role. I'm talking women who really are up there as exemplars. There's not a single woman teacher in the history of Judaism we can name. Do you know what, do you know what that means? Not a single woman teacher in the history of Judaism. There's a woman that came out of Denver who was a PhD, really an analyst and a Jewish rabbi. I can't tell her name right now, but some of you may know she was here last year and talked about the best site. But can you see my point when I don't when I don't classify her in the oh then either I haven't heard about them and I need to read the book or we're talking about two separate things yeah correct yes. That is certainly part of the picture. Yeah, but Chris, but and, and the reason Christians could because Christians had monasticism, and with monasticism that provided role models. Jews don't have monasticism; they don't have mystics. In theory, there could have been Jewish female mystics, but they don't because the the tradition has been custodianed by men. Amen. I share that. I share that perspective. Where would you categorize Nachama Lidwich, Viva Sonnenberg, Erica Brown? Great teachers. Great exegetes. Not religious geniuses. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. Where would you characterize my teacher, Aaron Lichtenstein, or Rabbi Soloveitchik? I would still characterize them as great teachers, not as great spiritual luminaries. What makes a great teacher into a genius? The part of the lecture you missed. Huh? The part of the lecture you missed. Uh, but the short answer is a set. A set. A set. No, that's the one. That, right. No, that's the one. I, you missed the fact that I. Whatever. I thought this lecture was coming tonight. Uh, a, a combination of certain state of consciousness, interior qualities, and the ability to articulate a transformative vision for the religion and to state the meaning of the religion in a fresh way. Nechama Leibovitch is a great professor of Bible who developed a method for the study of the history of interpretation. It's a significant intellectual achievement, but she's not, she doesn't recast Judaism in a new light any more than Rabbi Arya Levine does through his, through his being a model for, uh, uh, for uh, uh, acts of charity and loving kindness. Same goes for Viva Zorenberg. She's a very fine, fine uh, uh, author, teacher, but she doesn't, she doesn't she doesn't give a new message for Judaism, nor does she meet some of the criteria that we introduced at the beginning for those people who are... Uh, we, we, we start with religious geniuses not as a subcategory of teachers, but a subcategory of saints. So that, that starts the whole discussion along the way. I think Lisa wants us to finish. <laughs>
I don't know. Never in my life have I, never in my life have I started an end of time. Phoenix has been transformative for me. Okay, thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.